We're going to take uh, a week away from the book of Hebrews today and invite you to turn instead to the book of Acts in the New Testament, the book of Acts, in light of our uh, sending Clay and Melissa off again. We thought it would be appropriate to consider what God is doing and invite you to consider what God may be doing in your own life in light of their experience. So we're going to begin reading in a moment in Acts chapter 7, and we're going to read a few verses, skip a couple of chapters, go to chapter 11, read a few verses, skip a couple of chapters, go to chapter 13, read a few verses. This is uh, what I think that uh, God will help us with today. I hope you will keep your fingers moist and follow along with us. So we'll start in a moment in Acts chapter 7. Uh, we're going to begin reading uh, immediately after the end of a sermon in Acts chapter 7. That sermon is preached by a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen would be known to you if you are a deacon because most uh, Bible interpreters, or at least some, the majority, barely at least, I believe the first deacon reference in the scripture occurs in Acts chapter 6. The Bible says, uh, set apart seven men uh, who are full of the Holy Spirit and put them in charge of this uh, feeding program for widows in the church. And the apostles would instead devote themselves to to prayer and to preaching. So the, the apostles had a job and they ordained deacons the first deacons to do these other jobs. Well, one of those men in Acts chapter 6 is Stephen. We don't know a lot about Stephen until he begins to preach in Acts chapter 7. And uh, the only sermon that is recorded gets him killed, which some would say he wasn't much of a preacher. He ended up dead. But I think uh, as you read Acts chapter 7, you'll find that he is quite the preacher. He's far better preacher than anyone in this room, I assure you. And uh, I'm thankful to God for his witness. So we're going to pick up the story immediately after he finishes a 50-verse sermon. Apparently Stephen was not short-winded. He had a lot to say. Uh, So we're going to read follow along here in in, uh, verse 54 of Acts 7. Now when they heard these things, they being the Jews, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That is not a typical behavior today. Culturally, it's not normal when folks uh, get get mad at you for them to grind their teeth loudly in your direction. They may grind their teeth loudly quietly but not loudly but that is exactly what would have been happening there but he verse 55 full of the holy spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of god and jesus standing at the right hand of god and he said behold i see the heavens open the son of man standing at the right hand of god but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears rushed together at him they cast him out of the city and stoned him And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then one verse in chapter 8, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So you'll recall that in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, those who are gathered in the upper room. It's uh, estimated there were approximately 100 plus people in that room. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. The apostles receive the Holy Spirit and they leave that room and they begin to preach in tongues. And there are people who are gathered for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. So there are people who are devout followers of Jewish practice who've gathered in Jerusalem, the centerpiece, if you will, of Jewish practice where the temple is located. And they're gathered there for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And as such, they've gathered from the four corners of the world. Jerusalem swells to twice its, or perhaps three times even, its normal population for these feasts as pilgrims, if you will, come from all over the world. And they come because they are followers of Judaism. But they begin to hear the gospel in Acts chapter 2, and men begin to preach. So you're from Africa, and you hear the gospel in your African language. You're from Europe, and you hear the gospel in your European language. You're from Asia, and you hear the gospel in your Asian language. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon these men, and they begin to preach in strange languages, languages they have no training and no experience in. It is a profound miracle, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. As a result, the Bible says that some 3,000 are converted in a single day. Literally, you go from a standing start and you have just leapfrogged over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and now we're in the thousands. 3,000 are converted as a result of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, men like these that are mentioned in Acts chapter 6, Philip, who Clay mentioned a moment ago, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. They begin to preach and preach and preach and preach. And they begin to advance the cause of Christ. And over a period of weeks, even months, they begin to uh, push up against people in such a way as to make them mad. The Jews don't like the suggestion that they are responsible for the killing of the Messiah. You read Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. He is not kind and gentle. This notion that Jesus is all soft and cuddly to people that are making a mockery of the gospel denies the reality of the gospel in Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 23. You read those chapters and you'll find that Jesus is not at all soft and cuddly and neither are those who follow Jesus. They are loud and they are bold. And so Stephen is bold, and he ends up dead. They take him out of the city, and they stone him. We won't hear it. We won't have it. You have blasphemed God, and you have criticized us, and we're in charge, and we will have you executed. And they do. And they lay their garments at the feet of a young 
up-and-coming Pharisee, a man named Saul. Saul is his Hebrew name. His Greek name is Paul. It's often said Saul changed his name to Paul. Not true. His Greek name is Paul. Same guy. Same guy. Same name. Just in Greek, it's pronounced differently than Saul. But this young Pharisee, young Jewish man, on the fast track to success, is supervising the execution of Stephen. And they lay their garments at his feet. That's a way in that culture of saying, we have, we have finished the assignment. And we lay our garments at your feet because you have authorized it. We're going to skip over uh, chapter 8. But in chapter 8, Saul receives documents from the high priest to go to Damascus, Syria, and there to arrest more people. And he's going to bring them in chains to Jerusalem. And uh, there is a great persecution. But the key phrase I want you to note here at the beginning of chapter 8 is that as a result of this great persecution, the church is scattered. The church is, is, is in its infancy. There's a few thousand of them and the Bible says they all scatter. And they go to the regions of Judea and Samaria. Judea is the region there uh, around Jerusalem. They, they get out of town. And then also to Samaria, north of there. We also learn that they don't stop there. We're just going to skip over the passage that uh, Clay read in chapter 8. And uh, go, you'll recall in chapter 9, Saul is actually on the road to Damascus with his if you will, his subpoenas, uh, his arrest warrants to arrest people and bring them back in chains, and he is converted. The Lord appears to him on the road to Damascus. When Susan and I were in Israel uh, several years ago, you sent us there, and we're grateful for that. Uh, we were at a place near the Syrian border on the road to Damascus, and it is suggested that this could have been and certainly was not far off from the place where Saul was converted. He is converted. He's brought to his knees. He is uh, led into the city. And uh, there he is witnessed to and confirmed. And he begins this uh, very unique ministry all around. Know of his reputation. And they are afraid. They are afraid to believe. What? That man is converted? No way. No way. You can't believe that. He, he's an evil man. He's beyond conversion. And yet he is converted. He's miraculously converted in Acts chapter 9. He begins this ministry. Acts chapter 10, we're going to skip that chapter, but that's the chapter where Peter has this heavenly vision of this sheet coming down and all of these unclean animals that kosher Jews don't eat. So an, a sheet full of animals that are unclean. And the scripture says you should eat them. I've never eaten these kind of animals, Lord. What the Lord has created, don't declare unclean. We know that the application of that particular experience is that God is about to open Peter's eyes and he's about to open the followers of Christ's eyes to see that God intends to take his gospel beyond the kosher experiences of Judaism and he's going to take the gospel to the world. What God has declared is unclean, let no man call unclean. 
So Acts chapter 10 is that story. Now that brings us to Acts 11, and I want you to see what happens here in verse 19. We're going to pick up the story after reading Acts 8.1. They're scattered to Judea and Samaria. Now here's, here's 11.19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now I want to stop here a moment, do a little geography. Phoenicia is modern-day Lebanon. Modern-day Lebanon, so if you know anything about uh, geography, Lebanon is the country to the immediate north along the Mediterranean. Uh, the towns of Tyre and Sidon and so forth in the ancient world, all a part of ancient Phoenicia. Cyprus. Cyprus is the big island nation just west of Lebanon or Phoenicia in the Mediterranean. The most famous person you've ever heard of from Cyprus is Barnabas. We're going to hear from Barnabas in a minute. And then Antioch. Antioch is a, a, a large city. Uh, estimates suggest that at the time of Jesus' death, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Third largest city in the Roman Empire. There's a lot of historical reasons why that's so. I won't belabor. You just have to either trust me or go prove me wrong. But Antioch is a great city. It's in the, the, the nation of Syria at the time. Today is in the nation of Turkey. Turkey wraps around uh, the, the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean, drops down along uh, the Mediterranean, and Antioch is, is there about 30 miles inland. So these people from Jerusalem have traveled north and across at least 100 miles of the Mediterranean to the nation, the island nation of Cyprus. Let's read again in verse 19. They arrived in Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. The Hellenists are just Greeks. These are Gentiles. Also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. So the folks back at headquarters, Jerusalem, heard about these folks up in Antioch converting to Christ who are not Jewish. And so they sent a guy to check it out. His name is Barnabas. He would be a likely candidate because he himself is from Cyprus. You'll remember that Barnabas is a, a prominent man, a, a, a devoted man, a man that is going to assist the Apostle Paul momentarily. So verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul is from Tarsus. He's gone home. After conversion, he's gone home. He had been in Jerusalem, working, as it were, at headquarters of the Pharisees. But he's gone home. He's back in Tarsus. Tarsus, again, on north of the island of Cyprus in the current nation of Turkey. They go, he goes to Tarsus and looked for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now one more section. We're going to jump over. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, uh, James is the first of the apostles who was martyred. Uh, James, the brother of uh, John, the son of thunder, is martyred in chapter 12. Chapter 13, though, pick up the story with me in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and there are names here, and I want you to note these names. Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger. We'll come back to Simeon. Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Five men are named, and they could not be more different. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Seleucia is about 30 miles from Antioch. It's on the Mediterranean. So Seleucia is the place where you catch a boat. You come to the Mediterranean, you're about to get on a boat. Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus, about 100 miles. When they arrived at Salamis, which is the easternmost port of Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, or John Mark, to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, now, again, we don't know the geography, but Salamis is on the eastern side of Cyprus, and Paphos is on the western side. Basically, they started on the east and moved all the way to the west across the nation of Cyprus. And they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Perga is the seaport near Ephesus, also modern-day Turkey. And John left them, that's Mark, and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga, and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Antioch is a common name, sort of like the naming a, a city Washington. Lots of cities in America named Washington. Lots of them. Antioch, likewise, named after politicians. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue, and they sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and he began to preach. I'm not going to read his sermon, but I am going to read the last paragraph. Look at verse 42. And they went out, Acts 13, 42, they went out. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. By the way, nobody has ever asked me, begged me to preach again the next week. 
Nobody's ever had, I've never had that experience. Don't start today, by the way, or I'll just think you're just patronizing me. So um, don't do that. They begged them, come again next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. They're in Antioch of Pisidia. This is not a small place. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, This is a very important quotation from the Old Testament, Isaiah 49.6, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, I have obviously cherry-picked a few stories from the book of Acts to, I hope, help you see what's going on here. I want to make three very brief points that I hope will be of encouragement to you and, I hope, challenge the way you think about our responsibility as missionary people. First of all, I want to take you back to chapter 11. And there is a phrase here that stands out prominently that you should not miss. Verse 19 The scripture says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. The first thing I want you to note here is that the Holy Spirit intends to direct and indirect our lives. To direct and indirect our lives. I wonder, you know how when you're a child, somebody might ask a six-year-old boy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'll come up with whatever they come up with. I wonder what are the odds that that's actually what's going to happen. I'd say they're pretty poor. That's not a criticism of six-year-old boys. It's not a criticism of any profession. It's just an acknowledgement that men make plans. Women make plans. But the Holy Spirit intends to direct and indirect your plans. Think with me about this story. The Bible says that God brought a revival. In fact... Much has been preached over the years that we ought to get back to Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. 3,000 converted in a single day. People following Christ. It was a great move of God. The Holy Spirit fell, speaking in tongues, miracles, top of miracles. Yeah, let's get back to Pentecost. Well, I'll remind you, friend, that the high water experience of Pentecost didn't last very long. Because in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned 
And everybody except the 12 cut and run. Cut and ran. Everybody. Because there became a great persecution. Make no mistake about it. We war against principalities and powers that we know not of. And the notion that somehow Satan is going to go quietly into the night is ridiculous. When the Lord moves, Satan moves against him. And we should anticipate that the Holy Spirit is going to direct and indirect our lives through those circumstances. I imagine that when people are converted in Acts chapter 2, and they have these great experiences, and they are huddling with the disciples, the apostles there, they think this is going to last a long time, and we're going to have this great experience, and we're just going to stay here together. But God has plans. He has plans that he's been talking about for centuries. He has plans that he tells us specifically about in Isaiah 49.6, that I intend to make you a light to the nations. Well, I'm not going to the nations if all I want to do is stay here in my little holy huddle. So God has to orchestrate, control, allow. You come up with your word that you're friendly with. The persecution of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 8. He has to use a young up-and-coming Pharisee named Saul to take people to jail again and again and again and again to break up a holy huddle. Because God intends to be a light to the nations. Because you see, God has paid a high price that his glory might be made known on the earth. He gave his only begotten son that his name might be exalted over all the earth. And it's not just for the Jewish people. It's for every people, every tribe, every ethnicity. Every language. The reason all these people are speaking all these languages in Acts chapter 2 is because God intends for His glory and the glory of His Son to be known in every tongue. God intends this. So the Lord intends to direct and redirect our lives. And He does this again and again and again and again. And He does it in minor ways. Six-year-old boys don't grow up to be what they thought they were going to be. They get a different job. I talk to a lot of our college students. What you majoring in? Well, I'm a little uncertain. Hey, I changed my major in college five times. No lie, I did. Five times. Every semester, I'd try something new and change. You expect me to do that the rest of my life? No way. Not doing that. So I'm all about change. I'm all about being redirected. I'm a living epistle of what it looks like to be redirected. And so are you. Maybe you're doing something that you've always done. Great. You're the minority. You're the exception. But the Lord has used events and circumstances in our lives. Some of them are financial. Some of them are physical. Some of them are relational. 
Some of them don't have any similarity with anybody else. You're sort of a unicorn. God's kind of doing something with you that he's not doing with anybody else, or at least that's what you think. But God intends to do this. Notice, it's just sort of a throwaway comment, seemingly. I don't believe it is, but it seemingly is. In Acts eleven nineteen, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled. How's God going to get the word to Phoenicia? People are going to go there. Well, what if nobody wants to go? Oh, they'll want to go. How's God going to get the word to Cyprus? God's going to send people. Well, what if nobody wants to go? Oh, they'll want to go. What if God wants to get the word to Asia from North America? Well, what if nobody wants to go? Oh, they'll want to go. God has all kinds of ways to accomplish his plan. So the Holy Spirit intends to direct and redirect and indirect our lives. Let me reflect, if I might, in light of the pandemic. You know, preachers worry about a lot of things. I, for one, uh, this is not my worry. I have other worries, but this is not one of them. I, I just have never worried about what God has been up to in the pandemic. I just, it, but I have a lot of preacher friends who are just, I mean, they are freaking out. And I, 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 just, I just have to, you know, call, call them on the carpet and say, hey, chill out, man. This is the way God does. He, he, he works in situations that we would never forecast. Invariably, everybody wants to immediately, they want to, they want to stand up as some sort of prophet, and they want to be able to say, well, I know what God's doing. Really? You got it all figured out. I mean, it took you like three months, and bang, you got it. I mean, he's done something here that, that we've never seen in our entire lives. But it only took you three months. You are brilliant. Well, I don't know what God's doing with this pandemic thing. Is it necessary to shut down the world economy? I don't know. Is it necessary to put fear in the heart of every man? I don't know. Is it necessary that God shut down travel and all kinds of materialistic things that we used to enjoy? I don't know. But all those things have happened. And it seems to me that this is just another example of the fact that when God wants to direct and redirect our lives, he's just plenty capable. Think of that for a moment. God used a bug that you can't even see to change your life. Well, what if nobody wants to change? Oh, they'll change. God intends day after day after day after day to constantly come alongside us and poke us in the eye and say, are you following me? He's always done that. It's a fair question. Are you following me? I don't guess people ran to Phoenicia because they were following God. I guess they ran to Phoenicia because they were scared for their lives. 
So I don't know what God's doing in your life, but I think you would be wise to keep your ears open and your eyes open and listen and watch. Because the Holy Spirit has always used earthly circumstances to direct and redirect his people. Second thing, look at chapter 13. The Holy Spirit also often uses people that men may overlook. I don't want to take too much time with this, but let's consider this. I want you to note the men in verse 1. Barnabas, Barnabas is a man from Cyprus. That's an island nation. He's clearly a Jewish man. Then there's Simeon, who's called Niger. Niger is the Latin word for black. Simeon is a black man. Barnabas is not a black man, neither is Paul. But Simeon is a black man. He's called Niger, the Latin word for black. Simeon is not like Paul and Barnabas. But there he is. He's listed as a prophet and a teacher in the church at Antioch. Simeon, called Niger. Probably, almost certainly, an African. Then the next guy, Lucius of Cyrene. We don't know a lot about Cyrene. We don't. We do. We meaning the, the books, but we North Americans don't. But Cyrene is in modern-day Libya. Again, an African, a North African. Maybe not a black man, but certainly an African. Not a man like Paul or Barnabas, but he's African. And then Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, remember, you, again, Herod is a name that gets tossed around. There's Herod the Great. There's Herod Antipas. There's Herod uh, uh, Philip. Uh, th- there's all these Herods, which, by the way, is not unusual, right? If, if, you have, if your name is Greg and you want to name your son Greg, you, you do it. I didn't. First of all, you have to have a son, so I didn't. Uh, so I didn't. But people do that all the time. It's not unusual to name your children and grandchildren after a beloved father. Well, Herod the Great, the, the king who is king when Jesus is born, who, who wants all the babies killed and so forth, and Jesus flees to, to Egypt. Uh, his parents flee there. Uh, he, he's a prominent man, so it's not unusual that his children and grandchildren would be named after him. So there's a lot of Herods, and you get them all confused. This is the one who's kind of the governor over the Galilean Judean area, Herod the Tetrarch. Well, who is Menaean? Well, Menaean is a guy who grows up in a completely secular, he's basically a, a, a ward of the state. He's a, they handpick these young boys and they grow up in the court of the king. So think Daniel, think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these young men that grow up in the company of the king and they serve the needs of the king or the, the purposes of the king and so forth. So there's, here's Menaean. A, a member of Herod's household, or if you will, his entourage. He's a part of the political machine, and yet here he is. He's a prophet and teacher in Antioch. He's not from Antioch. He grew up in, the, in and around Jerusalem. 
He's a long way from, Antio- from, uh, from Jerusalem now. He's in Antioch. So who are these people? Well, these are the people that the world would probably overlook. If you're, if you're ex- expecting God to use people like, I don't know, Peter, James, John, Matthew, those kind of people. Well, okay, that puts you in the, the norm. That's the kind of people you expect to be used. These are the people that walked with Jesus, the big disciples and whatever. And yet, when you read the book of Acts, those guys are virtually non-existent. Other than Peter, James is mentioned once. He's, it's the chapter where he dies. John's not mentioned in the book of Acts. Matthew, these other disciples, they're, they're not mentioned. What, what happens is... He, Peter's mentioned up until Acts 13. Then Acts 13, the focus immediately goes on on Paul and all of his missionary journeys. But in the midst of that, if you will, the the fertile soil that gives rise to Paul's missionary endeavors includes not these other guys, not Peter, not James, not John, not Matthew, not these other named disciples, apostles. Instead, these guys, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetra, Barnabas. Then this guy named John Mark. Who's he? We're going to find out about him later. He writes the gospel of Mark. But the Holy Spirit often uses people that men may overlook. So you may look around the church today and you say, I wonder who's the next likely person to actually go to the mission field. I'm guessing we wouldn't have picked Clay and Melissa 10 years ago. I'm guessing they wouldn't have made the lineup. But I'll tell you something, friends. God intends to use people just like me and just like you to do His will. Now, His will is not only in Asia. His will is right here. But if you think for a notion that there's a superclass that do super things, and then there's an underclass that does nothing, you need to know that is a lie of hell. There is only one class of disciple. And that is the class that was purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And that gets us all. And we are to follow Christ. Even if others say, ah, leave that to somebody else. We better be paying attention. Maybe this pandemic has been a way that God has caused us to come to at least somewhat of a stop, if not a full stop, so that he might say to you, I'm tired of you ignoring me. There's a third thing. We see it also in chapter 13. And that is that the Holy Spirit intends that the glory of God be known throughout the whole world. Look at verse 47. Chapter 13, verse 47. Paul speaks in defense of what he has said and done. And he quotes Isaiah 49, 6. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit intends that the glory of God be known throughout the world. Throughout the world. It turns out that you may be nationalistic. 
Sometimes that goes under the guise of being patriotic. I would suggest to you that every country I've ever been in is is nationalistic. They're proud of their country, as they should be. We We would not expect otherwise. They're proud of their country. They're proud of their heritage. They're proud of their culture, as they should be. I'm telling you, friend, if I move to Asia with Clay and Melissa, and we don't occasionally have mashed potatoes, I'm going to be disappointed. I'm proud of my culture. I'm proud of this waistline built by mashed potatoes. <laughs> food is an important thing. We're delighted in food. So guess what? Folks come to our country, they want to eat their food. That's not weird. That's normal. That's typical. That's usual. Listen, last week, Susan and I went, and I had turkey and dressing at a restaurant. Susan has a very narrow application for turkey and dressing. As for me, once a week, I'm happy. I love turkey and dressing. Maybe it's because I associate it with a lot of really treasured experiences. Have you ever noticed how food, have you ever noticed how smells take you back? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't intend to be territorial. He intends that the glory of the God who made the entire earth be known across the entire earth. We don't have time, but I would encourage you to go back and read Isaiah 49. Uh, the most famous section of Isaiah is, begins in chapter 53. The suffering servant, the one who was wounded for our transgressions, and by his stripes we are healed, and so forth. The suffering servant. Well, he, the suffering servant is actually introduced a few chapters earlier, and it is the servant talking in Isaiah 49, 6, it is Jesus talking in Isaiah 49, 6, and Paul quotes him in Acts 13, and he says, I intend, Jesus now, I intend that the glory of God be known throughout the earth. You know, if God created you, then God created everyone like you. And we're all the same, different Heights, shapes, colors, different markings, but we're all the same. We all came from the same root. We're all sons of Noah. Remember, after Noah, there were only eight people left, and they were all his family. And prior to Noah, we were all sons and daughters of Adam. We all came from the same people. We're all the same. Now, we've split up and sort of taken on cultural expressions that are different, But uh, God's kind of impressed with that, even if you're not. God's not exactly intimidated by that, even if you are. The Holy Spirit intends that the glory of God be known throughout all the earth. And it is hard for men to get together who are not the same. So when you find men getting together who are not the same and walking to the beat of the same drum, you step back and you say, wow, wow. How did that happen? God is always in the business of stopping the culture in its tracks and say, what you can't do, bring enemies together, I can do.
What you can't do, removing the hostility between this and that, them and those, him and him, I can do. I'm startling the world even today by bringing people together by means of the gospel. It is the gospel that tears down the wall of hostility between us and God, and it is the gospel that tears down the wall of hostility between man and man, culture and culture, enemies and enemies. We have the good news. Let's go tell it. And let's go tell it again and again and again and again. Because this is the nature of our God to bring out of many one. One people following him. I've made you a light for the Gentiles. That you may bring salvation to every tribe, every nation, every tongue, to the ends of the earth. I hope today you would consider what is God doing in your life and how can you participate in bringing this good news to the ends of the earth. May God give us grace that we would be faithful in our responsibility. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are full of grace. Thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you for the glory of Christ. Following him is exactly what we want to do and ought to do. I pray, Father, you would give us clarity of sight. Help us to see what you see. Do what you do, believe what you believe, practice what you practice. Please, Lord, help us that our lives are not squandered, our lives are not wasted. If we've been in the doldrums, Lord, waken us. If we've been distracted, bring us back. If we've been unconcerned, Father, stir our hearts for the glory of God. And for the glory of the name of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.